Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of Conversations Over a Cuppa. Today we're talking about the idea of what makes a river champion and why river champions are really important in our natural resources management sector. I'm joined by my friend Simon Mould and we've known each other for quite some time and I thought it might be quite nice if he were to introduce himself with a bit of a story about how we came to be working together. So over to you Simon. Hi, Shuan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I remember when we first met, I think it was at my first Australian Stream Management Conference in the Blue Mountains, and I had was giving my, um, my first ever full presentation as a, um, as a PhD student for, um, for, uh, um, for a room there. And I remember um, nervously going through my presentation, telling the story of my research, which was only partly finished at that point. Um, and you were sitting in the front row and I remember you asked a question right at the end that, um, that was about um, how we can better integrate um, the science with what people are doing on the ground. And it was a question about relationships. And I remember thinking what an interesting question that was. And so <laughs> I, I had to follow up with you after the, um, after the presentation was finished. And I think we got chatting and, um, and it went from there. And, and it was just such a joy at that conference to hear Simon's presentation because so often at conferences, and actually I'm, I'm delighted to say this has started to change, we tend to just focus on the practicalities of river management. And as a sociologist, we actually know that river management is as much about people as it is about the rivers and the geomorphology and the hydrology and the fish. So Simon and I, actually connected really well around that idea that rivers and people need each other to thrive and so we've continued to work together and recently we've just published a paper which is called supporting champions in river management and what's really interesting about that is this idea of a champion um, Simon do you want to elaborate on how we often think about champions and whether that's what we're talking about here for river management yeah, the champion idea is is a is a pretty interesting one because it's it's often thrown around in in the business community and we talk about champions um, more generally in society as these um, big bold leaders that um, that take brave steps and stand out above everyone else, um, and that can be the kinds of champions that we see in river management. There are definitely some some strong visionary leaders that you see at the forefront of change, but we have also noticed another kind of champion that's a, um, a less visible leader or a leader that, that maybe doesn't conform to the, the typical leadership styles that we associate with championship. And so that's what we've tried to draw out in, in this paper is those people that we've met in our work as researchers and teachers and as practitioners, all the co-authors on this paper, um, we've tried to draw out what it is that makes these other kinds of champions effective in their work in river management. Yeah, and, and it has been an interesting collaboration because along with Simon and myself, we've had uh, Kirsty Fries and Richard Howitt. And Richie is a teacher, lecturer, long history working in academia and also in river management. And Kirsty, as well as a geomorphologist, she's well known to many of us, she's also a teacher. Uh, and so for the four of us to come together and actually get really um, a very common view on what makes a river champion has been a really interesting process. So as we went about this, we came up with sort of three sort of defining features of a river champion. 
And as Simon mentioned, this idea of leadership in broader society tends to be focused on, you know, the biggest, the loudest, the extrovert in the room. And yet we found that not to be the case with the River Champion. So Simon, do you want to talk a little bit more about the sort of a leader that a River Champion might be? Yeah, of course. So champions are, are leaders usually when we talk about them, but um, what we found is that a lot of the, the people that we'd like to call champions, the people with, that we think are really driving change and, and innovation and doing good work in river management, they're not necessarily the loudest person in the room. When you go to a community meeting or um, any other kind of gathering, they're not the people who are, who are standing up and making bold claims. They're often the people working quietly behind the scenes. Um, a good example of that is we've encountered uh, rural landholders who are particularly effective at influencing their neighbours and the people in their community to adopt more environmentally friendly property management practices. So they might, um, rather than going out and telling other people how they should be managing their farms, these people might quietly get on with their work and, and, and experiment on their properties and make improvements. Um, and when they're interacting with their neighbours, they're they're sharing that information and sharing their experiences in a uh, in an interpersonal way or a softer way that that um, that that encourages other people to also think differently about the way that they're doing their work. So that's one way that um, that we might encounter quiet leaders as champions. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, you know, I have the privilege of working with some fabulous landholders and. They're often those people that, you know, will just stand quietly. They'll just be chatting to the person next to them. If someone shows an interest, they say, oh, yeah, you know, come over and have a look. Uh, and they really are so incredibly effective because they're not really noisy. They're not overbearing. They're actually quite easy for people to relate to. Um, and as a result, the, the second feature that we found in the River Champion is that they build and use social capital really effectively. Um, and anyone that knows me knows that I bang on about social capital all the time because <laughs> we talk a lot about natural capital or, you know, the, the sort of capital that's reported in the financial reports. But social capital is the trust and the knowledge, the relationships and the shared sort of norms that contribute to a sense of group identity. And so river champions are people that use their social capital really effectively in that they're part of a wider group they prioritise relationships. And when you do that, you're able to build trust. And as a result, um, you have a really strong base from which to, to go forward and do your work. Have you got an example from some of the people that you interviewed for your work, Simon, about someone who was good at using social capital? Yeah, I definitely do. And, and the social capital um, component of championship, I think, is really key. I remember um, one particular landholder that I worked with in my PhD research. Um, she had developed these, these practices for eradicating a particular kind of weed on the riverbanks. And she'd worked really hard on her property to, um, to, to get rid of all these weeds and improve the condition of her streamside vegetation. And the, um, and she'd put a lot of work into that. She'd put a lot of work into hosting field days and things like that on her property as well to share her experience with others. But she did come up against some, um, 
some pushback in her community about the use of pesticides, which is a problem in, in a lot of communities. People have different opinions about that. And so um, she chose to really use her social capital and build social capital as a way of, um, as a way of uh, dealing with that conflict. So um, what she actually did is she organized a round table that, that brought together landholders with different opinions on the use of herbicides and also on weed management more broadly. Um, she brought together those people with um, scientists and, and researchers, so including myself, and she brought together some people from the local government and state government as well. And we all sat around and talked through some of the concerns around weed management and, um, and, hep and herbicide use. And we also talked through some alternatives. So everyone had an opportunity to present um, some alternatives and some, um, some of their experiences and knowledge. And, and it resulted in a really constructive discussion. Um, everyone shared their, um, their views and we made plans to, to trial um, some of those alternatives in different places and learn from that experience together. So what I think was really interesting about that experience is that even more so than sharing information, the value of that meeting was in building relationships and trust in that group. So we built relationships and trust across um, landholder groups that, that might not always see eye to eye and also relationships and trust between um, landholders, scientists and, and government um, practitioners um, who maybe don't always see eye to eye. So the value was, um, was really clear in, in building social capital there. Yeah, look, that, that's a great example. And, and I think, you know, we've used a couple of landholders as examples. Um, I actually also know a number of leaders who work within government institutions like local land services or catchment management authorities, um, as well as in land care and, and other areas. So, so being a leader isn't confined to a particular professional role. You can be a leader wherever you are. Um, and I often think people feel that somehow they're not a leader. But we, we lead by our actions and by um, coming from, from our values. And that then shines through. And that, for me, is a sort of authentic leadership as opposed to whoever might be sitting at the top of an organisation. The other thing that we found really interesting about River Champions, and I, and I guess this moves the person into that liver, the, the, the River Champion idea, is that they've got an ability to work across a range of different scales. So they're able to think about issues and problems and processes across a number of different spatial scales, um, as well as scales that, that are looking at the different sorts of groups that you're interacting with. Um, Simon, have you got a couple of examples of, of how people work across scales? Yeah, so scale is a really important factor in environmental management, and particularly in river management, we... Um, Rivers don't don't recognise political boundaries. They don't recognise property boundaries. Things like that. They they um, they go where they will. And so, river management and environmental management more broadly is all about managing um, challenges to do with scale. How do we make decisions? Um, how do we manage resources um, at a state scale, at a community scale, at a property scale, all the way down to a habitat unit in a stream? So, um, it's incredibly complex. And and we found that a lot of the people that are really effective are able to think across those scales. So not compartmentalizing and just working at one scale at a time. They're always thinking about the connections. Um, and those connections might be in the natural environment. Um, they might be you know, natural connections or they could be human connections. It could be community relationships of scale and also relationships between people and their environment. So um, one of the champions that I've worked with uh, was employed in state government 
and she worked in um, she, she, in supporting community members to to implement um, more sustainable river management or land management practices on their properties, and she would get um, interest from landholders who wanted to have rehabilitation works done on their properties, or sometimes she would approach landholders to see if they would be interested in having some works done, and she would always be prioritizing those jobs based on um, based on how she could connect those projects spatially, but also how she could connect different people um, with the, with other people who might be able to support them. So maybe, so maybe linking up neighbors who might be able to support, support each other in sharing their experience and information, or maybe linking up people with, um, with some of her colleagues who might be able to help a landholder with a, um, with another kind of problem they're having on their property. So maybe, a, a, you know, an animal health issue or something like that. So she was able to, to look at the big picture and also deal with people personally to, to build connections. And that really added value to her work. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you were talking, the picture that comes to my mind is, you know, you've got a blank sheet of paper and you've got a whole lot of blobs on the paper and uh, they're not connected. And, and what our champions and our, our leaders do is to actually connect those dots. Um, and as a result, you then get an interconnected system. And, and that's why that scale idea is so important. And it's also the reason that we think supporting river champions is really critical as we go forward in river management. I mean, this year has been a pretty awful start with uh, bushfires, floods in some areas, and now we're dealing with COVID, which has huge mental health implications for many um, people across Australia. Championship and being a leader is even more important. So Simon, how do we actually nurture championship in river management? What are some of the things that we can do? So one of the most important things I think we can do to nurture champions in river management is to reward their time. It's important to remember that the champions of all kind, whether they're working in a professional capacity or in a voluntary capacity, they're giving up enormous amounts of time because they, they care about the project that they're working on or the issue or the place that they're working on. So rewarding time doesn't have to mean that you are rewarding them financially. A lot of the institutions and the networks that we work in are not very well resourced all the time. So it's really about listening to and understanding the person and working out what kinds of rewards are going to be most meaningful and relevant to them. And I know that you have been involved, Joanne, in a, um, in, in, a, in a particular example that was quite creative about rewarding somebody's time. I was wondering if you could tell that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Look, as, as you were saying, I thought, oh, I've got this great example. So, so thank you. Um, I uh, worked with a lady who's a, a, a coordinator in a land care group, um, lives locally and works really across so many different groups in that community. She's always on the go, always going to lots of events uh, and decided that, you know, it, it would be good to have a bit of a change um, to try a different sort of institutional framework. So um, she moved into government and it's, it's really interesting because we still catch up, but, but, there's something missing. Um, so although the, the uh, more permanent job is fantastic in terms of finances um, and that security, because as many of us out in the consulting world where, where I sit, you know, it's, it's often feast or famine, um, 
she sort of feels that there's still she, she's lacking or, or she's trying now to to really rebuild the connection and the rewards that she got from working out in local communities so so as a result of course um, she's probably working full-time in government and then spending all of her weekends out <laughs> getting the getting the reward if you like from that real genuine connection and people valuing the work that she does. I, I think, you know, when I go and work in um, a lot of institutions, I really encourage people to, to just stop and reflect and get up and go and talk to someone, to say thank you to someone, to not see having a cup of coffee as being something that's a bad thing to do. It's actually absolutely essential. Uh, and I know with uh, many of us in isolation at the moment, Zoom has been wonderful in terms of catching up with people. So I don't have phone calls anymore. I have Zoom calls and I actually get to see them. But yeah, I think, I think that was a really nice example of, of rewarding time. And people look for an opportunity be, to be part of something bigger. So one of our programs is called Rivers of Carbon. And, and actually, um, I've had someone come up to me and say, I am running a program in the same area as you are. I'm offering more money and less red tape, but I've got people that want to come and work on Rivers of Carbon and be part of Rivers of Carbon. And I think that's all around that idea of wanting to belong to something bigger because we do spend a lot of time on actually having social needs as our focus rather than just the river. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to blow around trumpet or anything like that. I think it's just a recognition that River restoration is as much about people as, as you know anything else, which is what we we said at the beginning. Um, in drawing this to a, a bit of a close, Simon, what was the last thing that we felt was absolutely important uh, in terms of nurturing championship? Yeah, the last thing was prioritising connection. So, in um, this is relevant for any kind of group, any kind of network, but also in professional settings, it's really important that champions are supported in building those connections and in building those relationships that allows them to build and use the social capital. So um, if you don't give people the time and space and the encouragement to invest in human relationships, then, those, then we can't benefit from those relationships. So we found that um, there were great examples in, in river management institutions where, um, where people in management had given their employees who um, worked directly in community engagement. People in management had given those employees the flexibility and, and actually encouraged them to take ownership of, of a particular community or a particular area. And, um, and they all recognized the value of that. So, um, so when somebody from a particular community would call up um, this organization and ask for some help or some assistance or some advice, um, they knew where to where to send that inquiry. They knew that it would go to the right place. It would go to one person who, as a starting point, who would um, would be like a point of contact for that community. And in, as part of my research, I found that that, that benefited everybody. The community felt um, really connected to that individual, that um, that government employee. They knew that they could trust her. They knew that they could call her, and they knew that um, that she understood their their um, their place and their issues. Um, it made the employee's position really um, uh, really easy because she knew all the people. She was able to invest the time, and she was able to. Um, build and actually draw on that social capital that she was building and her manager recognized that it was fantastic for their organization as well because they would um, get the work done more efficiently they'd know where to target 
um, funding and they would be able to um, to make decisions that that benefit everyone. So that was a great example of of an agency prioritizing that connection, making space and actually encouraging um, employees to to invest in personal relationships. Yeah, and I, and I know that, you know, as I um, continue working in this area, I have actually started writing into many grant applications, which I'm sure lots of people are familiar with, um, the need to actually invest in, in human relationships and in supporting champions, whoever they may be, but they might be one of your landholders, they might be someone in a government or non-government institution, but to actually give time towards that uh, because we actually do need to start prioritising ourselves and our relationships and allocating resources um, as a result so that we can actually keep that, that incredibly vital social capital going. So, so as we wrap up, um, Simon, have you got any last words for people who might be listening in terms of whether or not they might be a champion? I think what we really want to get across with this paper that we've written is that um, champions just might not be the people that you thought they were. They might not be as visible, they might not be as obvious, but they are important. So look around you, look in your networks, look in your institutions, look in your communities and, and, and think about who are the people who are, who are really driving these, this work, who are the people who are, are working, uh, working quietly behind the scenes and how can we help them to be more effective? Mm. Yeah, and, and ditto from me. And, and also reflect on the role that you play. Never underestimate the impact that you can have within your organisation or within the group of people that you work with. There's lots of resources out there about leadership. A lot of them tend to focus on a very narrow range of leadership. I really like the idea of championship because we can all champion a cause, we can champion a way of being and we can champion the values that sustain us. So thank you, Simon, and uh, I look forward to chatting to you all again soon. Bye for now.